Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on the church. I've been thinking about this topic for a long time because I know that for some, the church represents hope and warmth and comfort and a sense of family and belonging and ultimately salvation by believing the forgiveness of our sins. But for others, the church can represent something controversial or even hurtful. You may have been raised in the church and have stepped away for any number of reasons. Or you may swear you'll never step foot in a church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Or you just might be intimidated by the whole notion of church and pretty sure that if you ever were to enter a church, you'd be struck by lightning. And, well, that can be embarrassing, if not painful. Going to church is a private decision and perhaps a right that many of us have taken for granted. Of course, that's not true in many parts of the world. Going to church or even desiring to gather to talk about God in some parts of the world can put you in great danger. When Jeff and I traveled to Vietnam, we met some really brave and bold young Christians who were spreading the gospel under the guise of teaching English. The persecuted church is very real. We've all heard about the recent atrocities happening to Christians under the rule of the Taliban in Afghanistan, for example. According to Pope Francis, persecution of Christians today is worse than even in the days of the early church. I find that shocking. 340 million Christians, or about one in every eight Christians, lives in a place where they face some type of persecution like arbitrary arrest, violence, a full range of human rights violations, and even murder. Right now, at least 13 people per day, which is 4,745 people per year, and remember, this is just what we know of, are murdered for their Christian faith. In this podcast series, I want to talk about the church, the history of the church, the role of the church during the time of Jesus's early disciples, and the need for us to return to the biblical role of the church today. There are many, many things we in the Western world enjoy today that have their early roots in the church, and we'll talk about that. I think that when we talk about the church as a corporate unit, it means different things to different people. For example, what do I mean when I say the church? Some think the church is solely the Catholic Church with a capital C. Some think Catholic, but with a lowercase c, meaning the entire corporate universal or one holy and apostolic church, which includes the Catholic as well as the Protestant churches. Well, if we can't even agree on what the church is, 
how can we agree on what our role is? So I thought it'd be worthwhile to trace the origins of the church and to understand how the church has changed through the last 20 centuries, but also how its mission of pointing others to the salvation found only in Jesus needs to remain the same as it was when it started almost 2,000 years ago. Satan's at work trying to divide the church and destroy the church, but this is nothing new. He's been trying to do this since the beginning, and spoiler alert, he won't succeed, but he sure can cause a lot of chaos and misdirection in the process. Today in the United States, many more people claim to be Christians than actually attend a formal church. You could say that recent decline in attendance might be due to the pandemic, but the decline in attendance has actually been steadily dropping since the turn of the 21st century, so like for the last 20 years. According to the Gallup poll website, currently about 64% of people in the United States identify as being Christians, but only about 49% of them say that they belong or regularly attend church. Now, this is down from 73% who regularly attended church back when Gallup started measuring these things way back in 1937. But that number, around 70, 73%, was consistent for the next six decades, all the way until about the year 2000. And then since then, there has been a steady decline. Before you start ranting about this, I want you to consider what this might or might not mean. Church attendance is not a foolproof indication of the strength of one's faith. One of my favorite Joyce Meyer quotes is about church-going Christians. She says, Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. I can go sit in the garage all day and it doesn't make me a car. Things in themselves have no life in them. A car can't comfort or encourage you. A house means nothing if there's no life or love inside. I tell people, and it's true, I could sit in my garage for a week and it still won't make me a car. And you can sit in church till your bottom is flat and that won't make you a servant of Christ. In other words, God can't drive a parked car. Isn't that great? Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it when we talk about the role of the church today. So, I told you that a little bit more than 64% of people in the United States call themselves Christians. What about worldwide? Well, 31.1% of the 7 billion people on the planet identify as Christians, and that includes Catholics and Protestant denominations. So, more people worldwide identify as being Christians than any other faith. What do you think is the second largest group? It's Islam, and that's about 24.9%. And then the next group after that, secular, non-religious, agnostics, atheists, make up about 15%. Now, I wanted to share this information with you so that you could have a baseline of understanding when we 
talk about the growth of the church, challenges of the church, and the ongoing mission of the church worldwide. In today's podcast, we're going to take a look at how the church got started and the role that it played in shaping the ancient Roman world. As we walk through these podcasts, I want you to consider a few things. What was the original intent of the church? How has this shifted, and what can we all do to get it back on track? Because the Bible makes it clear, we are the church, and it's much more than a building. If you listen to my Peter podcast series, you know that Jesus asked Peter to be the rock or the foundation of the church. Christianity began as a movement within Judaism. Remember, Jesus and his early followers were all Jewish. So much of the proclamation of the gospel actually took place in the synagogues. But by the end of the first century, the church largely separated from the synagogue and kind of went their own way. So the early believers didn't have church buildings to meet in. They mostly met in homes. In fact, the first church buildings didn't start to appear until the early 200s AD. Now, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means a called out assembly. So where did we get the word church? Is it in the Bible? You know, our translations say, upon this rock, I will build my church. But here's the history of the word. It probably derived from the old English Kirisi, which in turn came from the German word kirika, which likely came from the Greek kirake, which means of the Lord. Now, some scholars dispute this, saying that our English word comes from the Anglo-Saxon word kirk, which in turn comes, get ready, from the Latin word circus, which means circle or ring because the early congregants gathered in a circle. But that kind of strikes me as amusing because some churches definitely remind me of a circus. Okay, kidding aside, it seems that the oldest word for church, the word that Paul uses in the Bible, is the Greek word ecclesia. And that's where we get the terms ecclesial, ecclesiastical. So, the word was in use for centuries, though, before the Christian church appeared on the scene. And way back then, it referred to a socio-political gathering of citizens who were, like, called together to attend to the concerns of the city. So think of, like, gathering an assembly. But I think it's safe to assume that the terms political association had little to do with why followers of Jesus were using it. Um, they just probably borrowed the word from the Greek translation because it used to refer to Israel's sacred assemblies where people of God, the Jews, were called together to worship or conduct business. So it was kind of natural for the early followers of Jesus, nearly all of whom were Jews, to borrow a term that was familiar to them for assembly. So church at first was the Greek word ecclesia or assembly. Here's something interesting to consider. So, as news spread across the Mediterranean that a potential rival to Caesar had appeared, because Christianity was definitely a rival to Caesar, 
because Caesar was thought of as a god and was to be worshipped as such. So think about the impact of the knowledge that followers of Jesus were gathering in ecclesia, which to them means like a political movement. So they must have most likely thought that that came to mind. So what? Christians are meeting in a socio-political gathering? Imagine how this would have caused the emperor and his prefects to see the church as a threat and therefore make every attempt to abolish it, which they later did. So what do we know about the growth of the early church? I really did a lot of research. Um, some of it focused on the work done by a author and sociologist named Rodney Stark. And he does this really interesting YouTube interview, and it's called Jesus, the Game Changer. And he explains the growth of the early church this way. He says that contrary to what many people think, the early church wasn't solely filled with the lowly, the poor, the slaves, the unwashed, the unread. Because think about this. Okay, the Gospels were written between 60 and 80 AD. Well, who did the authors write them for if none of the followers could read? Someone had to be educated to read them, right? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, note that Paul doesn't say not any. He says not many were biblical scholars. But what we now know is that that means that some early followers were, in fact, nobles and educated and influential. And actually... There weren't that many nobles in the Roman Empire to begin with. Evidence shows that some nobles in the imperial family became a part of the Christian movement as early as the 50s AD. Okay, so some nobles became early followers of the teachings of Jesus. But why did the teachings of Jesus catch on so fast to people of all classes and backgrounds? Well, according to biblical scholars, the teachings of the early church actually changed the way people act in the community. So yeah, the Roman Empire was the most advanced civilization in the world at the time, but most people didn't live that well. Most people lived in poverty, and there was a great inequality between the haves and the have-nots, and those that had did not share with the have-nots. So those in need in the Roman Empire really had a dire situation because there were no social services. The early church described in the book of Acts in the Bible, well, they looked after the widows and the orphans and the poor and those whose society said were unable to care for themselves and earn a living. Christianity was setting up a different kind of a model society. Paul tells us that to be a follower of Christ, 
all were welcome, and that there was neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave nor free. This is a turning point for the Roman community. It's turning them upside down because in the Roman community, Caesar is at the top. He's like a god, and not much trickles down to those below him. But this thing called Christianity, there's a community that invites you and treats you as an equal member of the community. In fact, the lowly slave is given dignity and status. And then there's this commandment about love. They care for one another. People are no longer alone. They're taken out of isolation and cared for by the community of believers. If they're hungry, they know where to go. If they're sick, they know where to go. If they're infirm, they know where to go. The role of women during these early first centuries in the Roman Empire <laughs> was awful. Roman women were typically married around the ages of 12 or 13. To men who were typically in their 30s, women had no rights and they had little to say about their fate because they could be divorced and abandoned for no reason. And now a divorced woman in this time period was damaged goods and really as good as dead. Christian women, on the other hand, were married later, around 18 or 19 years of age, and divorce was not permissible. Adultery was frowned upon. Therefore, women in the Christian community had a much better life. And then Paul, in his letters, he advised men to not be celibate and that it was better to marry than to burn with passion. And then Paul taught that women's bodies and men's bodies belong to each other and that a man should love a woman like he loves his own body. And then Paul used the role of the church as the example of the beauty of marriage and the bond that Christ has for us as members of his church. This is radical thinking. Life of children in the Roman Empire, bleak. Children were often abandoned and left on the roadside. So if someone wanted them, they got picked up. If not, the children died. Now contrast that with the Christian community. They welcome women and children. And Jesus spoke about the beauty of having childlike faith. And he spoke about everyone being born in the image of God. In the Roman Empire, abortion was widespread. In the Roman world, young women had no choice in the matter. And if they became impregnated by an older man and he decided he didn't want the child, well, the women were placed at serious risk of injury or death. Remember, no anesthesia, no antibiotics, no nothing. But wives were easily replaceable, so it was very easy for these men to get rid of the wife and the child. Now contrast that with the church, where Jesus' teaching is that the life of everyone was sacred. Can you see how this idea was so appealing 
to young and old, disabled, widows, orphans, slaves, free, everyone. The idea of love and community and value of all human life and also the ability to look beyond their life of suffering to an eternity of happiness was extremely appealing. Now, history tells us there were two really huge plagues during the time of the early church history. One was called the Antonine Plague, and that was in 165 AD. And the second was called the Cyprian Plague, not quite 100 years later, 249 AD. Now, what's interesting is that during both of these devastating plagues, Christianity grew like crazy because people realized, whoa, Caesar cannot save them. Now, the wealthy, they were able to flee the city along with the doctors, but the Christians stayed behind in the cities, and they're the ones that nurse the ill. Research shows that, interestingly, the Christians survived the plague at a much higher rate than the average Roman citizen because they made sure that each other received food, water, and loving care. Well, this in turn kind of became a lesson to the pagan nations because they saw that Christian people cared for one another, had a greater sense of community, and gave money to take care of widows and orphans. Again, this was the world's first example of social services, and it really became a lesson for the neighboring nations. Interestingly, Roman Empire, Julian the Apostate, because he was the last pagan emperor. This was 361 to 363 AD. He tells his empire to look after the sick and the poor, just like the Christians are doing. But here's what happens. His request fails because there's nothing in the pagan traditions about caring for others. There's no tradition of honoring the sanctity of life or caring for each other. Isn't that interesting? During the early years of Christianity, literacy was around 5%. Rich, the nobles, they were the ones that read. But again, think about Jesus' sermons. They're pretty sophisticated and use imagery. And many of Jesus' sermons talked about being responsible with your wealth. Historians now say that because of this, it seems that the early church was perhaps more representative of the educated and the wealthy than we originally thought. But we also know that education became a priority of the early church. They wanted as many people as possible to be able to read and know the scriptures. Did you know that the very first universities were started by the church? The University of Bologna was started in 1088 AD by monks. And this is so interesting. It was a law school to help people understand Roman laws. Now, this is something I think so many people do not know about the church. The study of science 
began in these universities started by the church. Philosophy and science were studied here. And I think that this would be surprising to some people who saw the churches wanting to keep people uneducated, fearful, and in the dark. It was actually quite the contrary. The early church wanted to demonstrate that the world is rational because it was created by a rational God. God created reason and gave us reason so that we can understand things. And the Christian church view was the assumption that the world could be understood. You don't study how and why things work unless you think that there's a reason to study how and why things work and that the world works according to reason. But here's what's interesting. During this time, the rest of the world, the pagan world, felt the world was incomprehensible and not possible to be understood. The church, however, felt it could be understood. The early church brought a sense that things could get better and that things could be understood. Isn't that interesting? And did you know that the world's first scientists then were all ordained priests and cardinals? Sir Isaac Newton, you know, the gravity guy, he wrote more about theology than he did about physics. Now, these early scientists, this is so interesting, they did not see a contradiction between religion and science. The church did not have a contradiction. In fact, we have the study of science because of religion. The early church felt that religion is not about the material world. Science is about the material world. And it was clear to them, science can't tell you about the non-material world, the spiritual world. And so, therefore, the early church scientists didn't see a conflict. It wasn't science or religion. It was both. Monasteries were also created by the early church, and they really played a very important role in the world. These were communities of religious men who dedicated their lives to the church. Now, when you think of a monastery, how old do you think was the very first one? I was amazed. 318 AD, and it was built in Egypt. And did you know that many scholars believe that our modern-day idea of capitalism was invented by the church, by these monastic communities in Europe? Well, here's why. They had to earn a living, even though they took a vow of poverty. So they gave to those who could not provide for themselves, but they also created a surplus. And when they realized that they alone couldn't work the land, they brought in tenant farmers to work the land. And so the monasteries were the beginning of many of the essential elements of capitalism. But again, motivated by a biblical understanding of work and being made in the image of God and that work was good. Remember, in the Bible, God gave Adam good work to do. 
So this early church model was not just to hand out things, but also to teach people to then bring them up to a standard of living so that they could provide for themselves. And the effect of all this was that the church monasteries increased the amount of goods available to people, and therefore, the early church raised the standard of living in Europe across the board. The monasteries also had long-term economic plans. So again, this was not a, a noble society, you know, where you had to like hand things down to your son. No, the, this was like for in perpetuity. And so they offered opportunities to those who could work and a safety net for those who couldn't. What's also interesting is that the church and these monasteries were some of the only people during the Middle Ages who could read and write, so they provided education to the rest of the world. And then they also wrote books and recorded world events, and it's actually how we know what happened during the Middle Ages is really because of their writings. Monasteries also provided our first hospitals, orphanages, and, I thought this was so interesting, the first homes for the elderly. The church was started by the early followers of Jesus, and they were Jewish. And it grew quite rapidly. So one of the most amazing and significant facts of church history is that within five centuries of its birth, Christianity became the overwhelming majority of the population of the Roman Empire. And even to the point where Constantine, on his deathbed at and 337 AD made Christianity the protected religion of the empire. Estimates are that by 350 AD, there may have been over 30 million Christians in the Roman Empire. The early church welcomed everyone, all classes, men, women, children, slave or free. The early church was responsible for increasing literacy, which increase people's knowledge of the world, which increase their understanding of their rights and ultimately the growth of the middle class. Because of the church, there was more class movement to upper class because of increased education and the fact that the early church made a practice of actually buying people out of slavery. Here's a really cool fact. Pope Calixtus, who became Pope in 218 AD, had once been a slave. Now, did the early church ever disagree? What do you think? The early church didn't have denominations as we think of them today, like there were no Catholics versus Eastern Orthodox versus Lutherans. But that doesn't mean they didn't have serious disagreements within their ranks. They did. The Bible tells us that there were disagreements between Peter and Paul about one what one had to do to become a follower of Jesus, for example. But the early church followers didn't find this disagreement surprising. They felt that because they were dealing with matters of ultimate truth and error, these matters were to be taken with the utmost seriousness, which meant there'd be some dissension. As you probably know, the church has been persecuted since the beginning. 
The Bible speaks about this, and Jesus warned about it. John chapter 15, verses 19 through 20 says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. And then Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Paul talks about his own persecution in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Elystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Christians should not be surprised that unbelievers in the world hate them. If you think about it, it kind of follows a pattern seen in the world since Cain murdered Abel. And it is seen in the world's reaction to Christ himself. So what have we learned? The role of the early church was not only to share the good news of Jesus, but to create a sense of a loving community, to educate its members, to encourage a strong work ethic, to treat everyone as beloved children of God and value all human life. It can be said that the very principles of our entire Western civilization really started with Jesus and the church. Right now in the United States, we still have the freedom to talk about God, go to church, and assemble in many places to talk about our faith. However, going to church or even desiring to talk about God in some places of the world can put you in great danger. But let's not forget, the church belongs to Christ. The church has always been persecuted and it always will, but the Bible tells us that the crown of eternal life is what is promised to those who believe, despite the hardships they may face here on earth. I look forward to sharing the next podcast on the growth of the church with you next week. In the meantime, pray for the church and believers everywhere, and be a blessing to others.